All right, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so you heard the warm-up act. It was pretty good. And now you're here for the, the main show. <laughs> um, well, I'd like to, to uh, just mention a few words about Baum. I don't want to take up uh, his uh, limited and valuable time. But in my humble opinion, Bob is one of the real heroes of the modern movement for liberty on any range of different things. He has a background in business, a PhD in business, successful entrepreneur. At the age of 50, having sold his business, he said, what am I going to do now? And naturally, he said, I'll go to law school and get a law degree, clerked for two federal judges, was an intern at the Institute for Justice and a model intern, as they pointed out. Uh, the young lawyer there said my intern was uh, a bit older, had a PhD, was a millionaire, <laughs> and came to me and said, I finished all that work, do you have anything more for me? <laughs> and he said, well, I need to staple these things, but I'll take care of that. And his intern said, no, I, that's my job here, I'll take care of that. Um, he is a thinker about liberty. As I mentioned, any time I've ever found myself disagreeing with Bob, I sat down and said, what mistake have I made? Because he thinks so systematically and clearly about everything. And then finally, as a man of great personal integrity, he decides what is the right position, it has nothing to do with any personal interest as such, what is the right thing to do? And you can be sure Bob Levy will do it. So, chairman of the Cato Institute. Well, thank you very much. That was quite a uh, gracious uh, introduction. I'm, I'm going to talk about how the Supreme Court has subverted the uh, Constitution. Before I talk about a few of the worst cases, embellishing on some of the things that uh, Roger said, I want to set the stage with a few comments on how liberals and conservatives look at the Constitution differently, uh, and particularly how they both look at the Constitution differently from the libertarians. Uh, here at the, uh, at the Cato Institute. Of course, when I talk about libertarians, I'm not talking about the political party. I'm talking about libertarianism as a political philosophy devoted to private property, free markets, individual liberty, and uh, strictly uh, limited government. So at Cato, as you probably know, we don't endorse uh, candidates or parties. I mean, it was true there were a few people here who were <clears throat> big fans of Chris Christie, but that's just because they thought he might be the first American president visible from outer space. <laughs> we had a bunch of folks who were fans of Herman Cain, and then it, uh, they were sort of shocked by a poll showing 43% of the voters, and that's nearly 55 million people claimed to have been sexually harassed by Herman Cain. <laughs> Okay, no more, no more political jokes. The problem with political jokes is that some of them end up getting elected. <laughs> so we, we don't endorse candidates, we don't endorse parties, and as you're gonna hear, we are critical of Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives. What we do have is this consistent, minimalist view about the proper role of government. So conservatives agree with us on some issues, liberals on others, and as you all know, the conservatives agree with us on domestic, regulatory, economic, fiscal, budget, tax, those kinds of issues. Uh, liberals on issues like a more liberalized immigration policy, drug legalization, the right to same-sex marriage, uh, non-interventionist uh, uh, foreign policy. So is it, uh, is it 
an indication of libertarian inconsistency, that we agree with liberals sometimes and conservatives sometimes. It isn't, of course. It's, a, it's an indication that liberals and conservatives are uh, philosophically inconsistent. And to illustrate that, I want to uh, suggest to you that um, one way of looking at the U.S. Constitution, or for that matter, looking at our whole system of government, is to focus on the last two provisions of the Bill of Rights, uh, part of which uh, was covered by, by Roger, the Ninth Amendment and the Tenth Amendment. Of course, the Tenth Amendment tells us that the federal government can only exercise certain powers that are listed in the Constitution. And the, go, the, the amendment goes on to say, if the power isn't enumerated, if it isn't delegated to the national government, then it's reserved uh, to the states or, depending on the provisions of state, state law, reserved directly uh, to the people. So we have these express powers in Article I, Section 8, um, 18 powers, things like power to coin money, declare war, regulate interstate commerce, uh, create uh, postal offices, et, 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 et cetera. Now, liberals and, I mean, libertarians and conservatives agree generally on this very tightly constrained view of federal powers, but there are a couple of key exceptions. Uh, one key exception is that um, conservatives, but not libertarians, are willing to federalize, and by that, of course, I mean assign responsibility to the federal government, a significant amount of both criminal law and civil law. If you want an example in the criminal law area, take a look at our totally... Uh, feckless and futile war on drugs for which there's no constitutional authority. There are only a, a couple of crimes that are mentioned in the Constitution, you know, piracy and, and counterfeiting and, and, uh, and treason. Uh, beyond that, criminal law has been a state and local matter. But because conservatives believe that the war on drugs is very important to prosecute, they're willing to overlook the fact that there is no constitutional authority for prosecuting uh, the war on drugs. If you want an example in the civil law area, take a look at the uh, the outcry during the Obamacare debates for malpractice reform. Now, it may very well be that malpractice reform is a very important thing to do. I, I happen to think it is. Um, but the question that, that libertarians ask is, where in the Constitution is there authority for the federal government to get involved in malpractice reform? And if you ask the conservative, he says, um, it's a regulation of interstate commerce. The very same logic that the Obama administration advanced with respect to the constitutionality of Obamacare. If you know anything about malpractice, you know typically it's a, a doctor, uh, a patient living in a state that's suing a doctor that lives in the same state about an injury that occurred in the state where both of them live. So it's very uh, difficult to imagine that morphing uh, into a regulation of, of, uh, of interstate commerce. And yet, conservatives are willing to overlook that fact because they believe that malpractice reform is a very important thing uh, to, uh, uh, to um, see come to pass. So right now we have the federal government immersed in all sorts of matters that are not uh, authorized by the Constitution. And that extends to everything from public schools to hurricane relief to our, our welfare system, our retirement system, medical care, family planning, even aid to the arts. See if you can find aid to the arts anywhere. Imagine it anywhere fitting within a one, one of uh, com, uh, Congress's uh, authorized uh, powers. So that's one area of difference between conservatives and libertarians. Another area in the powers area is that conservatives are much less anxious than libertarians about concentrating an awful lot of power in the executive branch, particularly in this post 9-11 trade-off uh, between national security and uh, civil liberties. Libertarians remind their conservative friends that too much unchecked authority in one branch of government threatens the notion of separation of powers which has been a cornerstone of the Constitution. 
uh, for two and a quarter centuries. So the administration, and I'm sorry to say, I mean, most particularly the George W. Bush administration, may not all by itself set the rules, because that's not an executive function, that's a legislative function. And while the administration may prosecute infractions, the administration may not, after the fact, uh, determine guilt or innocence, much less may the administration uh, determine whether its own activities have comported with the dictates of the Constitution, because that is not an executive function. Uh, that is a judicial function. So th that's the powers of government perspective, sort of uh, uh, grounded on the Tenth Amendment and the separation of powers doctrine. Now, I also mentioned another amendment, the Ninth Amendment, that Roger mentioned as well, addresses not powers but rights. And what it says to us is that the listing of certain rights in the Constitution doesn't mean that those are all the rights that we have. We have all kinds of rights that existed before the Constitution was written, even before the government was formed. And as Roger pointed out, the Ninth Amendment uses the word retain. You can't retain what you didn't uh, already have. Now, this provision in the Ninth Amendment, this focus on all of these rights that we have, this imposes another powerful discipline on federal behavior. Because what it means is that even if the federal government complies with the Tenth Amendment, and only exercises the powers that are enumerated in the Constitution, the Ninth Amendment instructs that even that limited list of powers cannot be exercised in a manner which violates our rights. And if you want to know which rights can't be violated, the Ninth Amendment instructs that it's not just the rights that are laid out in the Bill of Rights, speech, religion, freedom from unreasonable searches and the like. It's those rights to be sure, but it's also the very, very long list of unenumerated rights, which in the libertarian view uh, would include, for example, the right to gamble, or for that matter, uh, the right to smoke marijuana. Now, notice that the presumptions in the Ninth and Tenth Amendment are exactly opposite one another. If you capture that, if you understand that, then you understand the entire structure of the federal system. The Tenth Amendment says if the power isn't there, the government doesn't have it. The Ninth Amendment is just the reverse. If the right isn't there, that doesn't mean that we don't have it. We have this long, long list of rights predating the Constitution, predating uh, the formation of the, uh, of the uh, U.S. Uh, government. So if you wanted to identify a single constitutional provision that most distinguishes the uh, libertarians from conservatives, it would probably be the Ninth Amendment. Uh, the conservatives treat the Ninth Amendment, and here I use a term coined by former Judge Robert Bork, as an inkblot. He said the Ninth Amendment should be ignored, nobody knows what it means. It's as if somebody spilled ink on the portion of the amendment that would have identified all of these unenumerated rights uh, that the libertarians tell us we have. Well, the libertarians don't treat the Ninth Amendment as an inkblot. They, they treat it as if it means something. And they argue it refers to our natural rights, the rights that we had by nature because of our status as rational human beings that existed even before the government was formed. What kind of rights are these? These are all of the so-called negative rights. It sounds like a pejorative term. It's not meant to be. A negative right is simply a right that doesn't impose an affirmative obligation on anyone else. By contrast, a positive right, or what more properly ought to be termed an entitlement, is a right which, if exercised, does impose affirmative obligations on other people. So let me see if I can uh, flesh that out a bit. Let's talk about the right to the pursuit of happiness. Uh, that's a negative right. I can pursue happiness. I don't need your help. Just stay out of my way. Uh, don't exercise force or fraud uh, against me. So you only have the negative obligation. And that's why it's called a negative right. If I exercise it, it only imposes on you a negative obligation. Leave me alone. 
That's the only obligation you have. Suppose, however, I had a right to happiness as distinct from the pursuit of happiness. Now, suppose I had a right to attain, to realize, to achieve a state of happiness. That's a positive right. It would indeed impose affirmative obligations on each and every one of you. If I had an enforceable right, and bear in mind, if you have a right, it presupposes that you have a remedy, something you can do about it if the right's violated, because a right without a remedy is if you didn't have the right at all. So if I have an enforceable right uh, to, um, to uh, happiness, it would mean at a minimum that none of you could do anything that would make me unhappy. And if you did, I would be able to get uh, uh, redress, uh, typically through the court system, by uh, getting an injunction against you. Now, these positive rights, we, the ones we're used to dealing with are not the abstract rights like the right to happiness, but they're really a subset of the right to happiness. The right to medical care, to housing, to education, to a minimum wage, uh, to health care, and on and on and on. Of course, these are integral uh, to the liberal view of the proper role of government. And uh, since I've been somewhat critical of conservatives, let me be an equal opportunity uh, uh, critic. Uh, liberals um, embrace big government. Why? Because they embrace positive rights. And what's the link between those two? Positive rights, as I've indicated, are rights that impose obligations on other people. Occasionally, the people on whom the obligations are being imposed don't like the idea. When I am told that I am responsible for providing housing for someone else, or if not directly a house, at least tax dollars by which that someone else can obtain housing, I sometimes resist uh, that notion. Well, how am I compelled to uh, provide housing? Uh, we call in the one entity in our system that's authorized to use force, the only entity, and that is uh, the government. And the government uh, compels us to provide these positive rights. And so liberals rely on big government and embrace big government because they embrace positive rights. Now, there's a difference, however, between the usual liberal stance on positive rights and the post 9-11 stance on one right in particular, and that is <clears throat> the right to civil liberties. And whereas liberals embrace big government in all of these other areas like retirement systems, healthcare, welfare, control over the private economy, uh, liberals do not embrace big government when it comes to determining the trade-off between national security and civil liberties. One wonders why the left's, I think, healthy uh, distrust of big government doesn't translate into support for uh, things like privatized Social Security and, and school choice and uh, the elimination of regulations that control everything from the size of a naval orange to uh, the ergonomics of, of office equipment. Why is it that the liberals can't see past two particular agencies of government when they're worried about big government, and that is the Defense Department and the Justice Department? particularly, again, in this post-9-11 uh, trade-off area. <clears throat> when those agencies get bigger and bigger, liberals are concerned. Every other agency can get as big as it wants, and the liberals uh, support uh, that growth in government. And oddly enough, those two agencies are the ones who are indisputably charged with a legitimate function of government, the Justice Department and the Defense Department, and that is protecting us against both domestic and foreign uh, predators. So imagine if the U.S. Congress were to delegate to the Justice Department, uh, particularly if it was still under uh, Ashcroft or Gonzalez, the power to enact regulations regarding this trade-off between national security and civil liberties, and it said to the Justice Department, 
Um, here's your guideline, keep us safe from the terrorists. Folks on the left would be apoplectic and they would have every right to be because it is not the job of the Justice Department to be crafting regulations. That's the job of the US Congress. But when the same Congress turns around and delegates to the Environmental Protection Agency the job of crafting regulations regarding the trade-off between economic growth and a clean environment, and it gives the EPA no more guideline to keep us safe from the pollutants, the folks on the left uh, applaud enthusiastically. So could it be that, that pollutants are a greater threat than terrorists? Uh, not likely. What is much more likely is that the left has this selective indignation about uh, big government, and that reflects an inconsistency in the liberal mindset, uh, much as there is an inconsistency in the uh, conservative mindset about uh, the proper role of government. And of course, that is the foundational question. Um, and I would argue that in assessing that question, the Constitution can be viewed through these two prisms. Uh, the 10th Amendment, which is the powers of government prism, and the 9th Amendment, which is the rights of individuals prism. And of course, if you want the libertarian view in a nutshell, it is that we view the powers of government very narrowly, the rights of individuals very broadly. That was precisely the view uh, of the framers. And I think that uh, uh, it's fair to say that the framers were, for the most part, uh, libertarian. So that's the uh, backdrop. And now let me talk about a few of the cases that I think have done a great deal of damage. With this uh, preface, uh, it's been now uh, 221 years since the Constitution and the Bill of Rights uh, was ratified. And since that time, there have only been 17 amendments after the Bill of Rights. Now, most other countries have had 17 constitutions. And we've had 17 amendments. Why is it there have been so few amendments to our a constitution, even though the framers could never have imagined what our 21st century world would look like. And there are lots of reasons, but I think there are three that are most uh, uh, relevant to today's uh, discussion. The first of which is that the framers were geniuses. And they crafted this incredible document, and their vision of liberty is every bit as relevant today as it was uh, back in 1791. Uh, uh, the second good reason is that in the process of exercising their genius, they had the foresight uh, to make it pretty difficult to amend the Constitution. Essentially, two-thirds of both houses have to propose amendments. They have to be ratified by three-fourths of the states. That's a difficult uh, hurdle to overcome, and not surprisingly, uh, it's only been overcome uh, 17 times. The third reason is not such a good reason, um, and it is that the Supreme Court has accomplished through the back door what the states and the uh, Congress could not have accomplished through the prescribed amendment process. And that is essentially uh, the Supreme Court has rewritten the Constitution, and in the process of doing so, uh, that has had profound uh, implications uh, for uh, all of us. So I want to mention just a few of the cases where this has happened. Um, in no particular order, this is not the worst case to the next worst, et cetera. These are all bad cases, uh, starting with one that Roger mentioned, and I'm not going to repeat a lot of what he said, but this is the 1937 case of Helring v. Davis. I mention it in particular because of its important, importance to the Obamacare dis, uh, the, uh, dispute. Uh, this is about the general welfare clause, or what now is also known as the taxing power, specifically the, the power in Article I, Section 8, that says Congress has the power to tax in order to provide uh, for the general welfare. This case uh, was about the uh, constitutionality of the Social Security system. Now, you have to think like a judge in examining these cases. Uh, when it comes before the court, the issue is not whether Social Security is a good idea. 
It's not whether Social Security is actuarially sound. It's not whether, whether uh, uh, folks like me enjoy receiving their, their check uh, every month. It's about where in the Constitution do you find authority for the federal government to be telling us in what manner uh, we are to provide for our retirement, or for that matter, that we are to provide uh, for our retirement. And the answer by the proponents of Social Security uh, was you find it in the power to tax. After all, the Social Security is a tax. You find it in the power to tax in order to provide for the general welfare. And again, as Roger noted, way back at the beginning, this was a battle between Hamilton and Madison that, that Hamilton won and Madison lost. Madison's view was that the general welfare clause was actually an impediment on Congress's other powers. If Congress exercised its other powers, said Madison, in addition, it had to exercise those powers in a manner that promoted the general welfare and not the welfare of what Madison called factions and what we today call the special interests. The court disagreed and basically adopted Hamilton's view. That was the general welfare clause gave Congress an additional power. And of course, this became then one of the uh, bases on which the Obama administration contended that the um, Obamacare uh, mandate was legitimate. And the court ultimately bought that argument, although I must say, the Obama administration treated it as a throwaway argument. None of the other, with one exception, none of the other lower courts, one out of eight, gave this argument any uh, attention whatsoever. Uh, but the Supreme Court did. Justice Roberts, as you know, said that Obamacare was not constitutional under the Commerce Clause, the Necessary and Proper Clause. Uh, the Medicaid expansion was not constitutional under the spending power, but the mandate uh, is uh, constitutional <clears throat> under the taxing power. Even though the legislation said penalty, not tax, Obama had assured us over and over again that it was a penalty. He had assured everyone that he did not intend to impose any new taxes on the middle class. The legislation elsewhere says tax, and so it's quite clear that Congress knew how to use the word tax when it meant tax in the section of the legislation which says what authorized the legislation. It says commerce clause. It says nothing whatsoever about the taxing power. That didn't stop Justice Roberts from saying this penalty somehow has been transformed into a tax and therefore uh, Obamacare is justified under the taxing power. This is a very, very bad part of the uh, Obamacare decision. It can trace its roots right back uh, to Helvering v. Davis. But I would say this, that I don't believe the Obamacare decision expanded the taxing power. The taxing power was established in Butler and in Helvering v. Davis, the two cases that Roger mentioned. All the Obamacare decision did, with a little bit of magic, a little sleight of hand by Chief Justice Roberts, was interpret the word penalty as if it was a tax. I don't think anyone denied that if the Obamacare mandate had been originally written to say the word tax, and that tax had been appropriately structured, that the, the, the Supreme Court would have had no, no problems whatsoever in declaring that it was constitutional. But since the legislation said penalty, that's why there was some skepticism about whether the taxing power would ever be used. Justice Roberts did not expand the nature of the taxing power. He simply read this piece of legislation as if it came under the taxing power, notwithstanding the fact uh, that it said uh, penalty. Now, the Obama administration uh, uh, offered a much more, um, I'd say, important and a much more um, consequential source of authority, and that was uh, the Commerce Clause for the mandate. The Obama administration cited, as I mentioned, in the legislation that the source of power for the mandate was the regulation of interstate commerce. The key case here, Roger cited uh, 
Jones and Lachlan, and there are a whole series of cases, culminating in the most outrageous, which is 1942's case of Wickard v. Filburn. And the issue there was a pretty simple one. Does Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce extend to activities that are not commerce and that are not interstate? And sounds like the answer ought to be self-evident, but it wasn't self-evident to the Supreme Court. Uh, Filburn grows wheat on his own farm. He doesn't buy the wheat. He grows it. He doesn't sell the wheat. Uh, he eats it, or he gives it to his farm animals. And the Roosevelt administration, FDR, comes in during the Depression and says the price of uh, agricultural products is too low. You have to cut back on your supply. Quit producing so much, Philburn. And Philburn says, under what authority? Roosevelt says, we're regulating interstate commerce. Uh, Philburn responds, well, look, it's, there's no commerce here. It's all, <clears throat> I'm growing it, and then I'm eating it. I'm not buying it. I'm not selling it. There's no commerce. And by the way, it's not interstate. It's all on my farm. One state. And the Supreme Court basically tells Philburn he doesn't get it. Uh, if he wasn't out there growing the stuff, he would have had to buy it. And if he wasn't sell, uh, eating the stuff, he would have had some left over to sell. So by growing and eating, instead of engaging in commerce, buying and selling, uh, Philburn, and if you consider in the aggregate all the other folks that were probably doing similar things that, uh, as Philburn was doing, in the aggregate, they no doubt had a substantial effect uh, on interstate commerce. And that uh, opened up these, these floodgates uh, for regulation. Now, it's interesting... Um, to note how the court dealt with the, the Commerce Clause. Um, Roger mentioned also United States versus Lopez. United States versus Lopez finally drew a line and said this cannot be uh, authorized under the Commerce Clause. The this was uh, a federal regulation that says it was a crime to possess a gun within a thousand feet of a school. Now to understand how those two cases fit together, Wickard and Lopez, you have to understand uh, what a couple of key terms mean. First of all, commerce. Uh, commerce is simply buying and selling. Well, there's no question but that Congress can regulate commerce, providing it's interstate, buying and selling. But Wickard v. Filburn, there was no buying and selling. So Wickard v. Filburn stood for the proposition that Congress's authority over commerce extends beyond just buying and selling. It extends to economic acts that in the aggregate have a substantial effect on commerce. What's an economic act? An economic act goes beyond buying and selling to such things as growing, as in Wickard v. Filburn, mining, manufacturing, distributing, and consuming. So not only buying and selling, but all of these other things. So Wickard v. Filburn says, not only does Congress's authority over interstate commerce extend to things that are commerce, but also to things that are economic acts, like growing, mining, distributing, consuming, as well as buying and selling. Well, what about non-economic acts? And that's where Lopez came in. Lopez stood for the proposition that Congress's authority under the Commerce Clause did not extend to non-economic acts, that is, acts that did not involve growing, mining, manufacturing, buying, selling, distributing, or consuming because Lopez was simply the possession of a gun within a thousand feet of a school, a non-economic act. Obamacare even went further, and that's why it was not necessary for the Supreme Court in finding Obamacare not to be constitutional under the Commerce Clause, it was not necessary to overturn Wickard v. Filburn, because Obamacare went beyond Wickard v. Filburn. As a matter of fact, it went beyond economic acts that were addressed in the Lopez case. 
Obamacare extended to things that were not acts at all. They were actually inactivity. So Obamacare stands for the proposition that the federal government may not engage in regulatory bootstrapping. That is to say, it may not force you to engage in commerce and then proclaim uh, that you can be regulated because uh, you are engaged uh, in commerce. But the seed case here is the case of Wickard v. Filburn. I do think that you could say that the Obamacare decision, as uh, repugnant as it was in some respects, at least drew this limit around the Commerce Clause. It cannot force you to engage in activity in order to regulate you under the scope of uh, the Commerce Clause. A third case with also uh, significant current implications is a case in 1934 called Home Building and Loan Association versus Blasdale. This is about a crystalline provision of the Constitution called the Contracts Clause, which says no state shall impair the obligation of contracts. I don't know what could be clearer than that, but it wasn't clear enough uh, for the Supreme Court, which upheld a, Man a Minnesota statute that doesn't uh, see if this sounds familiar, <clears throat> which postponed mortgage payments for financially troubled homeowners. And <clears throat> never mind the contract. And of course, now we are seeing a replay of this as, as uh, lenders are being uh, pressured to uh, waive foreclosure rights on subprime and some other mortgages. Now, we're not talking about mortgages that were fraudulently induced. If they're fraudulently induced, they're not enforceable. There are plenty of laws on the books to take care of that. Uh, we're not talking about foreclosures that took place with inadequate or incomplete uh, uh, paperwork. Again, there are already laws on the books. We are talking about contracts that were entered into voluntarily by lenders and borrowers, both of whom either were or should have been aware of the risks. There's been a default, and now one party to the contract is being told by government uh, that it should waive its rights. And of course, the throwback here is to Home Building and Load Association versus Blasdale, uh, 1934. <clears throat> Roger mentioned the non-delegation doctrine. Even folks in law school don't ver spend very much time studying this because it's effectively moribund. Uh, the court has never, uh, in the last uh, 70 years, uh, found that a, a, an enactment by Congress violates the non-delegation doctrine. Now, what's the doctrine all about? The very first sentence of the Constitution says all legislative power is vested in Congress. And, and there's a reason for that. Again, the framers were smart guys, and they understood that if they put this power in Congress, if we, the voters and the taxpayers, find that Congress is not doing things that we want, then we have recourse. Uh, we can vote the bums out of office. Well, what happens when Congress passes legislation and nobody knows quite what it means, and in some cases, Obamacare is a pretty good example. Congress doesn't even read. And then it delegates the responsibility for filling out these, uh, these uh, gaps in these, in these uh, statutes to one of the 320 alphabet agencies here in Washington, D.C. 320 alphabet agencies in Washington, D.C. Well, then the voters don't have any recourse because these agencies are not run by elected officials. They're run by uh, unelected uh, bureaucrats. And to give you some idea about the scope of the problem, all of these agency regulations are, are put in a book. It's called the Code of Federal Regulations. The Code of Federal Relations now is 200 bound volumes. 200 bound volumes, that's six times the size of the United States Code, which is the bound volumes of all of the laws passed by Congress. Six times as much. So if you like delegation, uh, despite the fact that uh, the first sentence of the Constitution says you're not supposed to do it, delegation of legislative power to non-legislative uh, entities, then if you like that, you will love 
uh, TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, the bailout, uh, which basically turned U.S. lawmaking power over to first uh, Treasury Secretary Paulson and then his successor, uh, Treasury Secretary uh, Geithner. First, uh, Paulson decides without any guidance from Congress whatsoever uh, that he's going to purchase toxic assets from banks that are too big to fail. And within a matter of a few months, he changes his mind. We're not going to purchase toxic assets. We're going to inject capital directly into these banks. Then his successor comes along, Geithner, and he says, no, we're not going to do that either. What we really need is a public-private partnership, and we know what that means. It means that the public, and that is the taxpayers, all of us, pick up the costs if things go south, uh, whereas the big bankers, if things work out well, they get to retain uh, the profits. And along the way, the federal government expropriates $180 billion to bail out insurance giant AIG, again, with no guidance from Congress, and a few tens of billions of dollars to bail out the automobile companies, despite an express refusal by Congress to approve auto bailout uh, legislation. And what have the courts said? Well, the courts have said, you know, we understand the Constitution uh, proscribes this sort of thing, but governing is a very complicated business, and we really do need the help of these 320 uh, alphabet agencies, and so we're going to make an exception, and here's the exception. Congress can delegate its legislative power, despite the ban on that in the Constitution, providing Congress provides an intelligible principle by which the agencies know how to flesh out, flesh out the law. So what's the intelligible principle that uh, Paulson and Geithner uh, had to follow? Nobody knows, at least of all the taxpayers that were footing the bill for this. Uh, the intelligible principles just seem to be make things better, and that's, uh, that's hardly a coherent uh, guide uh, to action. Next case, you're going to hear a great deal about, as a matter of fact, you've heard a great deal about it, and all you have to do is pick up the editorial page of the New York Times any day of any week, and you will see something critical of this case, and that's the Citizens United case. But the backdrop of the Citizens United case is a case called McConnell versus FEC. This is all about, as you know, campaign finance reform. So campaign reformers, they had this quixotic idea that money and politics don't mix, and so they passed McCain-Feingold back in 2002. We know how well that worked, because six years later, we have a presidential election during which more money uh, was spent than any election in the history of the universe. So much for keeping money uh, out, of, uh, out of politics. McCain-Feingold ultimately gets codified in BICRA, BCRA, the Bipartisan Campaign uh, Reform Act, and the Supreme Court had to address the constitutionality of BICRA in a case called McConnell versus FEC a year after Bicker was passed, 2003. McConnell, as in Senator uh, Mitch McConnell. The Supreme Court said that uh, Bicker is constitutional, and in the process of finding Bicker constitutional, the Supreme Court accorded less protection to political speech. And bear in mind, political speech is supposed to be the most fundamental form of speech that the First Amendment was designed to protect. Less protection for some forms of political speech than the court is willing to give to pornography, to Klan speech, to flag burning. All of those things are protected under the First Amendment, as in my view they ought to be. But if a corporation or a labor union under McCain-Feingold, under the BICRA statute, were to finance the publication of an ad that named a candidate, just named a candidate and advocated the election to defeat of that candidate. 
<clears throat> that ad would be unconstitutional. Ad would any publication that contained the same thing. So let's say Random House, a major publisher, decided to publish a book, and within the 600 pages of the book were three words, vote for Obama or vote against Obama. That would be violating McCain-Feingold. That book could be banned. Of course, we're not supposed to be about banning books uh, in the United States, and that's why, among other reasons, the Supreme Court decided to take another look at this. And they did take another look at it in the Citizens United case. And thankfully, in January of 2010, so just two and a half years ago, uh, the court overturned two of McCain-Feingold's very worst uh, provisions. The one is the one I just mentioned. No publication funded by a labor union or a corporation can expressly advocate the election or defeat of a clearly identified candidate. The second provision that was overturned is that no corporation or labor union can fund an ad that even names a candidate. It doesn't have to say vote for or vote against. Can't even name a candidate within 60 days of a primary or 30 days of an election. Justice Kennedy wrote the opinion uh, for, for the uh, court, and it was a 5-4 opinion. The case was about a movie called Hillary the, the Movie, and it was critical of uh, Hillary Clinton. So it was okay under McCain-Feingold to show the movie in theaters. It was okay to buy the DVD. But you could not, the producer of the movie, which is a corporation, Citizens United, could not pay for an ad that tells people that the movie was available to be seen in the theaters or that the DVD was available to be bought uh, from the distributor of the DVD because that violated uh, the ban on corporate or union-financed advertising that names a, a, a candidate. Well, Kennedy understood that this is all pretty ridiculous, and for a narrowly divided 5-4 court, they overturned those two provisions. Kennedy recognized that corporations and unions, that's not one monolithic block of money that comes in on one side of an issue. Typically, you have corporations on one side and unions on another side. Even within the corporate community, you had a company like Walmart, which was a major proponent, major supporter of Obamacare. You had a company like Whole Foods, which was a significant opponent uh, of Obamacare. Um, and by the way, the issue has been misrepresented by the media. And again, you'll see this every day in two major respects. The first of which is uh, the issue is portrayed by the New York Times and others as whether or not corporations should be treated as persons. Now, this is a very interesting issue about which there is a vast amount of scholarship, but it has nothing to do with Citizens United. Citizens United is about whether we, individuals, have the right to express our political views using the vehicle that we wish, whether that's a club, an organization, a partnership, an LLC, a, a, a labor union, or a corporation. It's our rights as individuals that are at stake here. It's not the rights of a corporation uh, as a person. And the second misrepresentation is that you will hear stated that the Citizens United opinion opened up the floodgates, and now we have this avalanche of money that's flowing into the coffers of the political candidates. Again, not true. After Citizens United, as before Citizens United, it is illegal for a corporation or a labor union to contribute a nickel to the candidate. All they can do now is they can pay for their own ads. The corporation can pay for an ad. The labor union can pay for an ad, as long as it's not coordinated with the candidate, and that ad can be distributed uh, without, <clears throat> without uh, uh, regulation. Of course, the proper answer here to uh, large expenditures for speech is, in my view, more expenditures uh, for speech. Uh, we need a healthy variety of viewpoints which voters can assess 
and base their decisions on. And as for um, um, remaining problems, that is, if there's some indication that this avalanche of money leads to the buying of political influence, uh, there are laws on the books that prevent some of that, as there ought to be. And ultimately, if we find that the system can't work as it's now structured, the answer is go amend the First Amendment. Don't treat the First Amendment as if it's made of so much tissue paper and it can be ignored, because that breeds disrespect for all of the rest of the Constitution. And as we in this room know, as for money, it's really just a symptom of the underlying problem. Uh, we have a big, if we, if we have a, a big money problem, it's because we have a big government problem. Uh, Washington, D.C. is where all the largesse is dispensed. So it's no wonder that we have lobbyists running to Washington, D.C. seeking favors. That's where the favors are. So you want to get money out of politics, if you want to eliminate this lobbying that takes place, then get government out of the business of doling out favors. Get government, cut it down to size, um, <clears throat> minimize the influence of, of big money. Uh, restore the framers' uh, notion of uh, enumerated and delegated and limited powers, and that will help get uh, money uh, out of politics. This is a short case, and I'll give you one more, and then we'll open it up for, uh, for questions. Um, this is a case called Bennis v. Michigan. It's about civil asset forfeiture. Mrs. Bennis owns a car, and um, her husband takes the car without her consent, without her knowledge. He picks up a prostitute. He has sexual relations in the car. Mr. Bennis is arrested. The prostitute is arrested, and the car is arrested. <laughs> and Mrs. Bennis says, you know, it's my car. He took the car. I didn't know about it. If I'd have known about it, I wouldn't have agreed to it. So let me have the car back. And the state of Michigan says, sorry, Mrs. Bennis. Uh, there's no innocent owner defense in this state. It doesn't matter whether or not you uh, knew about it. Now, of course, there's some things that government ought to be able to confiscate. If there's contraband involved, if I'm in the counterfeiting business, they ought to be able to take the counterfeit plates in and of themselves they are illegal. Ill-gotten gains, if I sell the counterfeit plates for 1000 bucks, they ought to be able to take the $1,000. But taking the car comes under what's called the facilitation doctrine, anything that facilitates the commission of the crime. And Mrs. Bennis couldn't get the car back, even though it was hers, even though it was taken without her consent, because there was no innocent owner defense. Now, some of the rules have been changed in some of the states, but not in all of the states. Why does this happen? Because the police departments are probably underfunded. They need sources of assets for their budgets, and this is one source. Our futile and totally ineffective war on drugs has given the police departments a major source of income to supplement for their inadequate budgets. They are given the power to confiscate these assets and to keep the proceeds when the assets are resold. So we have addressed a budget problem, if indeed there is a budget problem, uh, by allowing our police to do something that I think is quite blatantly uh, unconstitutional. And now the last case is about uh, eminent domain, which you have heard about, Kelo versus uh, City of New London, a 2005 case. Mrs. Kelo lives in this cherished home, which she's been there for a long time. She loves the home. She wants to stay there. But a private developer goes to the city of New London and says, we want to take Mrs. Kelo's home and the homes of her neighbors. And when the city says, for what purpose, the developer says, we have some friends at Pfizer, and uh, they're going to put up a pharmaceuticals plant. And furthermore, uh, there'll be an accompanying office building and some motels and all sorts of increases in the job base and expansions of the tax base, and this is a good thing for the community. Of course, when they asked Mrs. Kilo about it, she wasn't uh, crazy about the idea, and she pointed to the Fifth Amendment. And she says, doesn't it say that you can't take private property except for public use 
In public use, we mean military bases or, at a minimum, roads or government office buildings. We don't mean a Pfizer pharmaceutical plant and hotels and office buildings. The Supreme Court said, yeah, it says public use, but that's not the way we're going to read the Constitution. We're going to read it as if it meant public benefit or public purpose. And for sure, if you take a home or even a bunch of homes and you expand the tax base and you create some jobs by converting this into commercial or industrial property, uh, then that serves a public purpose. Of course, if that's to be the criterion, then nobody's home is safe uh, from the government bulldozers because you can always take a residence and increase the tax base and create some jobs by converting that property into uh, commercial or industrial use. Now, fortunately, there's an epilogue, uh, thanks to a media campaign by the Institute for Justice, which lost the case because of this abysmal opinion uh, in the Supreme Court, uh, <clears throat> because of a post-loss media campaign, uh, there have now been 43 states that have passed uh, some form of legislation that's reined in the use of eminent domain for purposes of economic uh, development. And I think therein lies a couple of lessons, uh, one of which is, particularly for you that are thinking about going into public interest law, that there are, there's, a, there's more than one way to win a case. Uh, even if you lose in the court, you can take it to a second court, the court of public opinion. And if you're successful, and in the case of the Kelo, there was a greater outcry than in any case I can recall since Roe v. Wade, if you're successful, uh, then you will obtain relief by legislature, even though you may have lost in the court. And the second uh, lesson there is that uh, the uh, federal government, the federal constitution, the constitution there sets a floor on your rights, not a ceiling. So the states can always give you more protection for your rights than can the federal government. The fact is that 43 states have now, under state law, they can't affect federal law, but under state law, they've actually protected property rights more rigorously than the federal government was willing to do uh, in the Kelo case. One other interesting fact in this case, and that is if you want to see uh, uh, the pharmaceutical plan up there in New London, Connecticut, in the office building in the motel, you drive up there, you won't find it. Uh, you, what you will find is a vacant lot where Mrs. Kelo's home used to be and her neighbor's homes used to be. So much for economic development. Uh, Mrs. Kelo's home has been relocated and made into a museum, thank goodness. So in a, uh, a free society, uh, we shouldn't have to ask for government's permission to participate in an election. Um, we shouldn't be forced to buy health insurance, uh, bail out car companies, but I think those abuses of, of government power uh, can be minimized only if the courts uh, ensure that the legislative and executive branches of government are bound by the chains of the Constitution. That's the function of the courts, and I think, regrettably, uh, the Supreme Court has occasionally been derelict in uh, fulfilling that uh, obligation, and it is uh, time, beyond time, uh, to restore uh, constitutional uh, government. So thanks for your attention.